All right. I really don't have anything to say but what I'm about to say, so let's pray and we'll get into it. God, I want to thank you for your grace and your mercy and the love that you have for us. Uh, thank you, even though the summertime is, uh, it's been really hot these past few days, Lord, uh, thank you that uh, we uh, here, we have cold water to drink and we have homes to stay in, Lord. I pray that you would watch over those people who don't have those things, God, who wrestle with this heat, who have nothing to drink, who even uh, don't have air conditioning or a place to go to cool off, Lord. I pray that you would watch over them. And uh, Lord, if we individually or as a community can ever be a blessing in that way, I pray that you would bring that to our minds, uh, to our eyes to see that so we could step in and make a difference. Um, So Lord, this morning, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, we're continuing through the story of David. It will be here all summer long in David's story. So, Will, if you would put the first slide up there. We're going to begin this morning in the story of David with... Bring it. There it is. We're going to start in Matthew. He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed... You can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Those are the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 17. In the context of what Jesus is speaking here, his disciples, he sent them off to do some ministry work. And unfortunately, disciples, they were, well, fortunately, they were doing some ministry work, but then they came across this one young boy, and this young boy had a demon. And they couldn't drive out the demon. And so the boy's father comes up to Jesus and says, Yo, Jesus, can you, can you help out here? Your boys can't do it. And I love Jesus' response. It's not like the peace sign, lovey-dovey Jesus that we think of. It's like, like, how long do I have to put up with you? I'm sure he said it that way. You know, How long? He wasn't like, oh, how long am I going to have to put up with you? It was like, how long do I have to put up with you? And so Jesus comes up to the boy with, with authority, casts out the demon. The demon goes instantaneously, and everything's good. But it causes some tension in the disciples. Because they've been given this authority that Jesus gave them to go and, and to cast out demons and heal the sick, but they couldn't do this one. And so it causes some tension in them, and they start to ask the question, well, what did we do wrong? Why couldn't we do this? Why couldn't we cast out the demon? And the answer that Jesus gave them was this. Because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, as you look in the whole story, especially in your Bible, the next scene it goes on to something different. It doesn't give us a reason. It doesn't give us an explanation. There's nothing. It just kind of leaves us hanging right there. Why did they lack faith? What was the problem? What was the reason for it? What was, what was going on in their brains? And so it's kind of left us in this place to just speculate what the disciples were thinking or doing or, or not doing. Maybe, maybe because they were given this authority that they became overconfident in themselves. They thought they were all that in a bag of rice and they're just out there and they're healing and they're doing all kinds of cool stuff. And, and they, became, they became more focused on themselves than on, on God and what God was doing. And they became overly confident. We, we, we don't know. Maybe, 
Maybe, um, maybe they just lost faith. Maybe this kid was really scary. Have you ever seen somebody with a demon? It can prove to be a little eventful. In Mark's account, Jesus said, uh, one like this only comes out through prayer and fasting. So maybe the disciples didn't seek God first. Maybe they didn't come to him in prayer. Maybe, maybe again, as we talked about last week, they were more... Um, They were more involved with or interested in the work of God than God himself. Because, you know, I got to admit, casting demons is probably some pretty cool stuff. So maybe maybe they were just all caught up in doing this work for God. And they just lost kind of interest in God. And they were doing their own thing. We don't know. We don't know what was going on. But what we do know is they could not cast this demon. Demon. Because they lacked faith. God didn't work because they lacked faith. As I was kind of marinating over this idea of faith, we, we throw faith out there so often in, in Christianity. And, and sometimes I wonder if we really, really contemplate what it is. You know, do you, have you put your faith in Jesus? Do you have faith? You need to have this much faith. You need to have that much faith. You, you want to grow in your faith. But what I'm learning in my life is faith is not some measurable commodity. Faith is not that thing that you can put in your room, that little thermometer, and, and you know, and you can color it in as you get more faith and more faith, and you get to the top, and wow, I'm all faithed up now because I, my thermometer is full. I don't think we can measure faith on a scale. And I know that might sound weird for some of you because as we, as we do life in the context of a faith community, you hear about people that seem to have a lot of faith. And then, you, then, you, then you hear about people that seem to have maybe, maybe very little faith. You hear people that say they, they have the gift of faith. And so that would make them, they, they, would, they would think they have more faith. And then there's, there's a spectrum in between. There's a lot and little, and everybody has different amounts to different things. And, and when we pray to God, we pray, God, would you increase my faith? And we think of it as this commodity, as this, this thing. And, and, and if, 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 you, if you have it a little, it's only this big. But if it's, if it's a lot of faith, maybe it's this big. But I don't believe faith is that measurable commodity that we like to water it down and make it. Because ultimately, at its core, at its foundation... Faith is a relationship with God. I mean, that's what it is. It's, that's where it begins. That's where it finds its, finds its growth. That's how it deepens. Faith is a relationship with God. And the deeper we walk in that relationship, the more faith we seem to have. You see, what achieves results in this world, what achieves results for the kingdom of God It's not us having some large quantity of faith. It's not about us being faith professionals. Look at Jesus' words. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, that's that's a little. That's very little. See, it's not not about the size of it. What What achieves results for the kingdom of God, what achieves eternal results... For the kingdom of God is the unlimited power of God on which our faith can draw upon. Because see, if it was about you and how much faith you had, you might think it was about you. And it was all about you and not about God. And just let me clarify this. It's not about you. I'm sorry to bust your bubble. But it's always been about God and his power. 
And it's about that power in which our faith or our relationship can draw upon. Because if you said, I have a lot of faith. It would give you grounds to boast. And there is no boasting in the economy of the Lord. You see, God can do anything. Anything. Look at the words of Jesus. This messes with me, that last sentence. Nothing will be impossible for you. Faith is small, as small as a mustard seed, and nothing will be impossible for you. That causes a little tension in me. I've done some things that I thought were very possible, yet turned out to be impossible. I thought I had enough faith. Maybe some of you have felt the same way. Nothing will be impossible for you. See, what, what, what I believe is going on here is that idea of nothing is impossible or everything is possible is, is in relation to your relationship to God. That you would know him deeply and intimately. That you would know the character of God and the nature of God. And you would walk in that rhythm. And you would walk in that harmony every day of your life. It's about walking in relationship to him. And then you begin to learn what nothing is impossible really means. Then you begin to learn everything is possible because you are in line with the will and the character and the nature of who God is. But it begins in that relationship with him, to know him. The story of David, and I'm going to be telling you this over and over and over again. The story of David is our story. His story is our story. It's a story about a person growing in their, in their humanity. I, remember, I don't remember if it was last week or two weeks ago. I said that you can reject God. You can just choose not to follow. But that doesn't make God less God. That makes us less in our own humanity. It makes us less of what we were created for, who we were created to be. David chose to follow God, to engage, to respond to him. And his faith story is is kind of our story. And so the first story we looked at, and what it tells us is that against all the odds, against what everybody tells you, against what everybody is, is just saying you can't do or you shouldn't do, that God has called you because of you and in spite of you. As David was called, the youngest, the insignificant one. David was called by God and anointed as king. And that's what the first story tells us about the character of God, that he calls us in spite of us and because of us, because he loves us. And the next story was about... We talked about what it looks like to, to live this, this kingdom work in our workplace. That God has put us there and he's doing work in us and God's always at work. And he can be doing work in the people that you, that, you, that, you, that you have this job with, that you're there 40 or 50 hours a week. And you can make a difference because you've been called as a priest to live that priesthood. You see, kingdom work is about serving. And isn't that what you do at work? You serve. Yes, maybe you get paid for some of that serving you do. But there is much more serving you can do in the context of your job than what you get paid for. And that work is kingdom work too. So the first two stories of David are our story. That was a little <clears throat> puberty squeak there, huh? Uh, they're, they're, they're our story. Story. 
But now, the next one we get into in David's life is probably one of the most popular stories in the Bible. And in fact, it's probably, I mean, many people who don't even go to church, who have never even cracked open a Bible, know of the story about David and Goliath. Now, instead of reading the entire thing, uh, I'm going to set up the first half. We're going to read a big chunk of it, but I'm going to set up the first half, and then we'll read the next half. So this is what's going on. Israel and the Philistines, they're, they're, they're poised for battle. One, they're on one side, the Israelites and, and uh, Saul's army, and then the Philistines are on the other side, and, and they're in this valley. And um, there's this big, huge, ugly dude, like seven to nine feet tall. He's got a big sword and spear and shield. He's, he's like, like all, he's got like tons of hair on his head and it all sticks out from the helmet. I know that because, because bald people are beautiful. So ugly people would have to just have hair. Um, it's biblical. No, it is. God only puts hair on those heads he's most ashamed of. Look it up. So, so anyway, so here's this guy. He probably smells. He doesn't brush his teeth. He doesn't bathe. And so what he does is he comes out every day to the battlefield and he taunts Israel. Hey, Israel, send, send, send a guy over here. And, and if he beats me, you win. But if I beat him, we win. It's, it's pretty simple. And, and it's, it's, it was a common way to fight back then. You would send your champions out and they would do battle. It saves on the bloodshed. And, and so it wasn't out of the norm. But Saul's army is terrified. He's even offering people like lots of money. I'll give you my daughter. Just somebody get out there and take this guy. And nobody's going. Nobody's going. And then, and then in, through a series of events, David's father, Jesse, is going to send him with some food because David's three older brothers are serving in Saul's army. He's going to send him with some food, and David happens on the scene. And now we're going to pick up the story in chapter 17. I'm going to start reading in verse 28, and it will be up there. Will's got his work cut out for him today. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger anger, and asked him, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. What have I done? said David. Can I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried, to walk, and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot, I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand 
chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. And he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the... Give the carcass of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it, that it is not by sword or spear the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone, the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, sword, sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along that place in the, in the road to Gath and Ekron. When, Israel, when the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapon in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army. Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul. And David was still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. And so this is the story of David and Goliath, the young man against the giant. You know, the same thought process that looked upon David as some insignificant weakling in his family's eyes is that same thought process that treated Goliath as this unconquerable giant. They looked at it from a human perspective. They only looked at it from the outside, not from a God perspective. Those who were fearful of Goliath, some of them actually hated David. And they were his own brothers. They hated, his, their, like David comes and he wants to bring them food, but his brothers get all up in his face because he has a wicked heart and he just wants to watch the battle. See, they were so their vision was so focused on the giants. Their vision was so focused on the Philistine army that they couldn't even begin to receive the gift that David had brought from his dad. The grain and the bread that he brought for his brothers. But they were so focused on this monster out there that they couldn't see any good that was taking place. The very minute we... Let the bad and the ugly 
even the evil in this world, when we begin to let it control us, when we begin to let it control our mind and the way we think, when we begin to let it control our hearts, when we begin to let it control our lives, when we walk around in fear because there's evil afoot, when we begin to make it, let it cause our response or even our reactions it will drown out any of the good that's going on around you. Just think of how many times, you know, you might have been in a situation and, and you know, life just kind of sucker punched you or, or uh, it, it dragged you down. Or even, even if something you would consider like evil happened to you, it was just, it wasn't good and it was bad and you just felt overwhelmed. And then a close friend or, or somebody close in your family comes alongside you and they begin to point out other things. They begin to point out some things that are, that are hopeful. They begin to point out some things that may be, may be good that's going on. And you just, you just never even saw them. You never even considered them until somebody else pointed them out. Because the reality of it is, if you allow the brokenness and the evil of this world to get a hold of you, it will demand of you all of its attention. If You let it. And so the army of Israel, David's brothers, the evil that stood in front of them in Goliath demanded all of their attention and they gave all of their attention to it. They were Goliath focused and they were missing the good that was going on around them. But when David gets there, when David gets to the battle line, he, he has a completely different vision. He has a completely different focus. David is God-focused. David is focusing on the Lord, not on Goliath. In fact, he was so God-focused that when he, when he sees these men cowering, he gets upset. He's like, oh, nay, nay, this is not going to happen. This Philistine will not win the battle. You see, when David is, he's a shepherd. Shepherds spend a lot of alone time. They're out with the sheep. And so he is out there watching the sheep in the wilderness. He has spent a lot of time with the Lord, experiencing God, experiencing how God would get involved in his life and in people's lives. He grew to expect God to move, God to work, and God to win because that's what he does. God wins. He experienced the protection of the Lord as he would go against the bear and the lion. Okay, that's a, that's a real bear and a lion. It's not some little Middle Eastern version like this. It's a bear and a lion. This year, we've had some skunks in our yard, and I had to do a little skunk hunting. So if you're a PETA person, then you just might have found another church. Anyway, so, so, so I got these skunks. I got my pelican, and, you know, they, they turned a little butt around. Tail comes up. They're messing with me. I am praying to the Lord that I'm not getting sprayed. I am running around. It's this big. And, 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 I'm, and I'm, you know, shots on the run. I, I got them. But, anyway, but it was kind of scary. David's going with a rock. And a slingshot after bear and lion. And then, after he saves the sheep, he grabs them and fights them. He has experienced the protection of the Lord in the wilderness. He knows God. He was so in tune with the presence of the Lord that, that, that he would hear the word of God deep down inside of him. And he trusted that word more than he trusted himself. And he didn't have this whole Bible that we have to read. 
He had the stories, the histories. He didn't have nothing in the New Testament. He hadn't written the Psalms yet, so he couldn't refer back to those. But he trusted the word of the Lord deep down inside him. And he learned to worship out in the middle of creation by himself. I'm sure as he looked up at the stars, he learned to worship and how he would learn to worship. And in that worship, later on, he would write the Psalms, these these beautiful poems of worship and, and just the ups and downs of the life he experienced with God. That was David. And so on the battlefield that very day, he was the only spiritually healthy person there because he knew God, experienced him, and he walked in a very deep relationship with him. And so he makes his case to Saul. King Saul, I'm going in. Saul's like, have had it, dude. Didn't give up too much, you know, didn't, didn't give him too much slack. But David knows that he's not going to go deliver this, this Philistine into the Lord's hand. David knows that God is going to deliver Goliath into his hands. That's a very different posture of the heart. David knows that this battle belongs to the Lord and not to him. And so he gets ready to go. And what does Saul do? Saul gives him his armor. Saul gives him his weapons. King's armor. That's a big deal. When the king dresses you up in his own armor. I'm sure some of the guys, they were probably jealous. And I'm sure his brothers were jealous. Little punk, now he got the anointing. Now he's got the king's armor. He's got a wicked heart. Wah, you know how old the brothers can be. And, and so, I'm one. Um, and, and, and so, and so but, but, but David is dressed in this armor. See, Saul was helping him the only way that Saul knew how. Because Saul didn't walk deeply and intimately with God the way David would walk. Lots of armor, weapons for battle, weapons of a soldier. That's the way you win a battle. It's very interesting, huh? David, the shepherd, is going out to do battle with a professional soldier. Goliath has been a soldier since his youth. And he's really big. He's battle-hardened. He knows how this is going to play out. He knows how to fight. You know, whenever the amateur goes against the pro, whenever the amateur goes out and to do do what God calls them to do, you know, God-sized stuff, whenever the amateur goes out and it it just doesn't make sense that they would do that, it it doesn't doesn't make sense with their present skill set or their education, their experience, it just doesn't, doesn't really fall into place. There are so many people that will surface up and offer their help, which which is not not a bad thing. People are willing to come alongside the amateur, the untrained, to help them. And so, as the amateur, we enter in this process of being qualified, and we get advice, and we get the books, and we go to the DVDs, and we take the course, and we go to the conference, and we can be very easily loaded up with a lot of stuff, good stuff, relevant stuff, stuff that's going to help. But all of a sudden, before we know it, very quickly we find ourselves, we're just loaded down, and we can no longer move. When we 
set out to plant this church. And I have to use the word plant because that's spiritual. Because you, just say, you don't say, well, you know, we're going to start a church because that just sounds dumb. You say plants. Because planting has this whole thing where you're sprinkling seeds, you're tilling the ground, you're watering the ground. You pull, doesn't that sound more spiritual? It's like uber spirit. We're planting a church. That's what the books say we're calling it. So, so when we set out to, to plant a church, we, got, we were a small group and we we're trying to figure out how do you plant a church? What do you have to do? I mean, I worked at a church for a while. Uh, I, I, I attended church for a long time, but I didn't have any idea on how to plant a church. So what did I do? Being the good Christian man that I am, I went out to find, to talk to people about how do you plant a church? And so I met with church planters. There's actually people that do this. And so I met with them and uh, they gave me lots of good advice. They, they sent me to all of these, uh, they gave me all of these resources and all of these books and the DVDs and recommended conferences I can go to, church planting conferences that you can go to. And so I, I got all of this stuff. I had all these meetings and, and I chatted with these people and I read the books and I read the books. I remember one book in particular. It was the icing on the cake for me. Uh, the book was It wasn't too thick, but it pointed out these four quadrants. And in each one of these quadrants, there were 10 to 15 questions that you had to to answer. Okay, so you had to answer these questions and had to implement everything in here. And then you went to quadrant number two, and that built on quadrant number one, and so on and so on. And as I was reading, they said that to successfully plant a church and then to launch. See, we don't say open the doors or grand opening. We say launch. It's got much more movement and flow to it. So to successfully do that, it would take 12 to 18 months of planning before you can do your soft launch. That's where you just try stuff out, and then you go back and you make sure things are okay, and then you do your hard launch. And I'm thinking, well, well, where are we going to get $3,000 to do the demographic study that was in quadrant number three to find out who we were trying to target? I was targeting people. It wasn't any, I mean, I'm just thinking people, if you got a pulse, you're welcome to come on in, you know? And, and so, and, 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 and so when I read that, I was like 12 to 18 months and, and, you know, being, being the spiritual guy that I am, I went, that's a lot of crap. And, 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 and so, and, 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 you know, I'm sorry if I offend you, but that's what I said. And that's what I felt. I'm like, you know what? I'm done with the books. Let's just see what God does. And so that's, that's what we did. And we broke like all of the rules pretty much, not on purpose. Like we're going to break this one. It just happened that way. See, it's easy to get weighed down with all of the stuff with all of the resources, with all of the advice, with all of the good intentions of others, just like David did. Just like he did. David David would end up getting rid of all of it. He would take all of the king's armor off, all of the king's weapons off, and he was going to be true to who he was. You see, if he went out dressed in the armor of King Saul, it would probably have ended very badly for him. He had to be authentic into who he was and what God had called him to be. And so it is with us that we are to be authentic and true to who we are, who God has called us to be, how God has called us to be, what he's calling us to do. Even in those things that don't seem to make sense, even the things that we may not be qualified for, we might not be educated for. Yes, you can talk to people, you can get get advice and get pointers, but you can't allow yourself to be weighed down and be somebody you're not in the kingdom of God because God has called you. Because of you and in spite of you, he has called you. And he will give you what you need in the times that you need it. See, David's story is our story, and our story is David's story. 
And Christ calls us to be authentic in who we are in him. You see, if we try to be someone that we are not, it will always end badly. Always. So David heads out. Authentic to who he is. Authentic to who God has made him. He is anointed boy, king, priest, shepherd. And he's believing and he's trusting And he has this faith that's rooted in a relationship with the Lord. And he heads out and he kneels down at the stream. And and he just, and he picks up five smooth stones. He kneels down at the stream and he puts himself in this vulnerable place before this giant. And he finds five smooth stones. Those are his tools for battle. Those are his weapons that are authentic to him. And then you know how the story ends. The Lord will deliver Goliath into David's hands. He sinks that stone into that guy's forehead. He falls down. David cuts his head off. Kind of gnarly. But hey, that's the way they rolled back then. I think I'd be tossing my cookies if I sliced the guy's head off. But hey, it's just me. I guess my question in all this for us, how are you living your life? How will you live your life? Will you live it with a God focus? Being authentic and true to who God has called you to be? Or will you live it with a Goliath focus in fear and in doubt, and just cowering behind the lines. Will you allow your life to be shaped by the Lord, or will you allow your life to be shaped by Goliath? You know, each of us has this very unique relationship with God. And and I'm amazed that God can do that. God is always true to who he is, He never changes. He is in relationship with each one of us and we are unique and we are distinct in that relationship. And God is always who God is. And so each of us learn our faith differently. And and the way we learn our faith, it's genuine to who we are, not someone else. It's genuine to us, authentic to us, faithful to us. God's children, loved, created, a priesthood, set apart. It's genuine and unique to each one of us. And he is continually revealing his will. He's continually revealing his word. God is always at work and he continually calling people in the name of Jesus Christ to enter into this beautiful rhythm and harmony, a relationship with him. Are you listening? And maybe a better question is, are you responding? Are you willing Are you willing to run to the stream and pick up five smooth stones?
because you walk so intimately and deeply with the Lord that you're more concerned about what he's doing and less concerned about your task at hand. You know, it's easy to lose our God awareness, our spiritual awareness, and it's way too easy to focus on the Goliath. It's, it's way too easy to live in fear. It's way too easy to live behind those lines with, with all that doubt. It's way, way too easy to live a false version of you, a shadow version of yourself. It's too easy to get caught up in all that. And that's exactly where the enemy wants you. Second-guessing yourself. Are you good enough? Are you able? God is able. Beyond what you can ever imagine. Don't ever, ever give up focusing on the Lord. Don't ever give into trying to be something or someone you're not. Live your life authentic to who you are in Christ. Walk deeper and deeper with the Lord and watch, just watch what he will do. I love you guys. Have a great week. See ya.